We're going to get into the message as we continue this series that we are in, in shift. We've been talking about shifting your attitude and then shifting into action. Today, I want us to shift our priorities. And I don't really want to alarm anyone, but today is February 4th. And that means there are 325 days until Christmas. I know, I know we're really not supposed to talk about Christmas until after Thanksgiving, and some people will push it, you know, and maybe start talking about it at Halloween. Do you know, in the Philippines, they start selling, celebrating Christmas in September. September 1st, decorations go up, Christmas music is playing. They're called the Burr Months, September, October, November, December, four months of celebrating Christmas. So it's true. We got 11 months, 325 days until it's Christmas Day. And have any of you actually started, you know, getting Christmas gifts or even maybe thinking about gifts that you're going to get for Christmas? No, of course not. Well, I, I recently heard about this and I've had a couple of discussions with Haley about it. It's something that is called the four gift rule. Any of you hear about it? Maybe you have. It's the idea that every person in the family gets just four gifts. Now, just to give you an idea of how popular this was, is, is as I was preparing and, and researching stuff, I Googled, four gift rule, 436 million hits. Now, I guarantee you, I didn't go through all 436 million hits to see what they're like. I looked up at the top several up there and stuff like that, so I have no idea what the, the very last ones we're talking about as far as the four gift rule no idea how popular this whole idea of four gifts is going to be with kids. I'm sure there are a lot of kids and maybe even some uh, adults who are saying, Mom, Dad, we got to stop listening to, to Pastor Val. <laughs> I mean, you're only going to get four gifts. But listen, the four gift rule, it boils down to this. It's a wish list of four things. One thing you want, one thing you need. One thing to wear and one thing to read. Okay, now kids are going, that nah, sounds like a terrible thing. We, we want the toys. We want all that other stuff. Maybe we, somebody's sitting there thinking, man, I really need to change churches. You know, Pastor Val, he's, he's going off on this. But parents have found that by listening to their kids and, and what their kids really want, they, they're learning about their kids' passions as they hear the things that they want. They're learning about their kids' sense of style and their interest in, in doing that. They are learning about the, the challenges that their, their children are facing as they listen to what it is that, that they need. Kids are learning to prioritize how to choose the things that really matter. Okay, and now whether you decide to go with this idea for, for this year for Christmas season, I think it, it would be a really cool exercise. It's a great exercise for all of us to figure out what our priorities are. Imagine that you are given a blank grid. Now, for some of you who have your, your bulletins, the handouts, it, I've actually got one in there. It's not blank. There are four things on there. And you were to write down one thing in each one of those quadrants. Kind of think of this as the grown-up version of the four gift rule. It'll be at the very end of the handout. At least I hope it's there. Don didn't include it. Oh, man. Sorry, it's not there. I wonder. Oh, man. Well, 
It's supposed to be there. Imagine there's this grid of four grid quadrants, and, and these are the four questions. I, I will get them to you somehow. Um, one thing that defines you. One thing you need right now. One goal you have for your future. One obstacle that is standing in your way. And I know some of you are writing them down. I will go through them again. I'm not sure where you're at. One thing that defines you. One thing you need right now. One goal you have for your future. And one obstacle that is standing in your way. And I will look around a little bit. For those of you who are writing them down, did, did you get them all? You're okay with that? If you need to, I'll get them to you a little bit later on. I, I mean, I actually did a whole grid. It was a four-part grid and had the questions up there and stuff like that. The question is, could you possibly do that? Can you answer those questions? Probably the biggest challenge for you, I know it would be for me, would be not to think of one thing to put in each box. The challenge would be to think of only one thing to put in each box. See, we're not very good at that. We hate the idea of being limited to one thing because we'd like to keep our options open. If we commit to the one thing, we might be missing out on something else. I do hardly any work at my house because if I do it, I might find something that I like better and then I'd have to redo it. So it just doesn't get done. So we look at these four areas and we think, there's not just one thing that defines me. I am a multifaceted person. I don't need just one thing. I need one thing and one thing more and then one thing more. One goal. Are you kidding? I, I have a lot of goals. Goals for Lisa and I family. I got goals for my career as, as things are changing and shifting. And, and I'm starting to think, well, now my career is winding down. What do I do? Where do I go with that? I have a bucket list that, that seems to get fuller and fuller, and I keep getting older and older, and I got all this stuff that I want to do before I pass away, and the time is getting closer all the time. How can I think of just one goal? And as I think about it, one goal in soccer would be great right now. <laughs> See, it's that phrase, one thing. That's really the, the sticking point for us, isn't it? And there are several places in Scripture that addresses the importance of one thing. And so that's what I would like for us to talk about this afternoon. We're going to look at five one-thing passages. And as we do, my prayer is that it's going to help us in possibly shifting our priorities. From being worried and anxious about many things to prioritizing one thing. And that's what our first passage is all about. I'm going to ask you if you would stand as we look at Luke chapter 10. You may be familiar with this. This is Jesus' interaction with two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. And so Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38, that is in the bulletin. I did look just before I walked up here to make sure that that was there. As Jesus and his disciples were on the way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, 
Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Thank you. You may be seated, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Now, the story itself, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? There are two sisters, one who is distracted with much serving. She's trying to be a very hospitable hostess. And the other one is just simply sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to Jesus as he speaks. He's listening to Jesus' teachings. And Martha, Martha, who is the distracted one, she goes up to Jesus and she complains about Mary. Lord, don't you even care? In other words, hey, are you paying attention to all the stuff that I'm doing, all the preparations, all the running around I'm doing for you? Can't you see how busy I am? And I love Jesus' gentle rebuke. I love that he actually calls her name twice. He probably says, Martha. And she's busy, so he goes, Martha, a second time. And so now she stops, and, and I'm sure she's probably fixing her hair, trying to wipe her hands off, trying to somehow prepare herself. Now Jesus has her attention, and they're looking face to face. And Jesus says, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or in Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. And notice here that Jesus, he doesn't explicitly say what that one thing is. What exactly is it that Mary chose? Well, our scripture, it doesn't tell us. She's simply sitting at Jesus' feet, and and she's listening to to Jesus' teaching. So, So is that it? Does that mean that we should all just go and quit our jobs? Let the dishes pile up. Let the bills get unpaid. The the kids go unfed. And we can just grab our Bibles and and, and, and sit down and and curl up and listen to a really good podcast from a a popular preacher, you know, John Piper or Stephen Furtick or Francis Chan or whoever it is you like to listen to. Doesn't that sound like it could be a really nice, cool thing to do? After But it isn't very practical, is it? After all, the book of James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Paul actually tells the church there in Thessalonica that if a man did not work, then he was not supposed to eat. So somehow it feels like there needs to be more to this answer than just Mary sitting there. But what does it mean for us to focus on just one thing? And I think that's where the other passages that we have today about the one thing will come in. We're going to spend some time looking at them. They should be listed there on on, on your handout just before all the the fill in the blanks there. There are four other portions of Scripture. We're not going to go over them all now, but I would encourage you to look at them a little bit later on. The first one that we're going to look at is in John chapter 9. See, one day Jesus and his disciples, they they come across a man who has been blind since he was born. And the disciples, they want to have some kind of theological discussion. And so they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that that he has been born blind? Now that sounds like a good, you know, like sit at Jesus' feet and sit and listen to Jesus all day long as he talks and, and he teaches and he gives this stuff. But you see, instead of debating the doctrine 
of suffering with his disciples, what does Jesus do? He simply heals this guy. And so this guy's neighbors, they start arguing, is this the guy who used to sit there and, and just beg? And, and some of them are saying, yes, it's him, and others are saying, no, it is not him. The man himself, he says, hey, yeah, that was me. I was the one that used to be sitting there begging. Well, how is it that you can see now? And he says, Jesus healed me. And so they bring him, they take him, they bring him before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they start arguing. Jesus, he can't be from God. He broke the law by doing a miracle on the Sabbath. But how can he heal someone born blind if he's not from God? And so they go and they ask this man, what do you think? And so the man says, he's a prophet. Well, they say, no, he can't be. So this guy must not have been born blind. And so they go and they get the guy's parents and, and they haul him in. And the parents say, yes, this is him. This is our son. He was born blind. He's been blind since he, his birth. And so they call the guy back in again. And their question, they go through this whole thing all over again. And finally, at verse 24 of John 9, a second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. We know this man is a sinner. So the, the man, he replies to them, and he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. The dude, he doesn't even know how Jesus did what it is that Jesus did. He doesn't really even know who Jesus was or, or where Jesus went. And you know what? We know even less about this guy than he knew about Jesus. We don't know his name. We don't know where he was from. All we know and all that he knows is he was once blind, and so now he sees. That's his whole identity. That is his whole story. What is your identity? Who are you? Now, some people find their identity in race, in gender, in level of education, in political affiliation, in economic level. You know, I have several different identities if you want to talk about it. I'm Lolo Tateo and to several others. I'm Pastor Val to some of you, Val to others. I'm, I'm an employee to my boss. We all have different kind of identities. But let me ask you this question. In 10,000 years from now, are any of those things going to matter? And the answer is no. None of that is really going to matter in 10,000 years from now. What will matter is whether or not you have had a transforming encounter with Jesus. Have you encountered Jesus? Have you had a, do you have a relationship? Have you had the interaction with Jesus? Have you allowed Jesus to change you? Can you say along with this blind man, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. I was sinking and drowning in my sin, but now I am saved. Please listen. 
This is absolutely the most important thing that I am going to say this morning. The most important thing about whether or not you have been saved by Jesus Christ and whether he has set you free from the power of your sin, whether or not you have confessed your sin to him and asked Jesus to forgive you and surrendered your life to him. Hear this one. If your identity is in Jesus Christ, then nothing else matters. If your identity is not in Jesus Christ, then nothing else matters. And if you have to tune out for the rest of this message and and let Jesus and the Spirit work in your life and, and to wrestle with that question, then you have my permission to do so. We'll we'll catch up with you or you'll catch up with us at the end of all this. But for those of you who are sitting here who have this whole identity question resolved and figured out, let's move on to the next one thing statement. This time we're going to go to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 27. We're going to talk a little bit about King David. Psalm 27 is written by King David and scholars will say, people will say, it's either when it's early on in his life or later on in his life, but he's looking back and he's reminiscing, he's reflecting on a younger time in his life. You see, David, he spent a good portion of his life on the run from King Saul. Saul was very jealous of David because God was with David, but not with Saul. You may remember, God had removed his blessing from King Saul, and he had given it to David. David, he was popular. He had killed Goliath. The people, they really liked David. Saul, he is very jealous. He is very angry. And so David, he is hiding out in the wilderness. Saul and his entire army are hunting him down, trying to kill him. And a couple times, they got really, really close. And you need to keep that in mind as we begin reading the words in Psalm chapter 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Now, does that sound like someone to you who is on the run? Someone who is fleeing from a jealous king who is chasing after him? Not at all. In fact, it actually sounds like someone who doesn't really have a care in the world. You know, God's got it all taken care of. Now listen to verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. You're King David. You're really just kind of David at this point in time. And you're you're hiding out in the desert. You're hiding out from a king who is determined to, to hunt you down and to kill you. What would come after this? One thing I ask, one thing that I seek? Safety. Maybe that King Saul would somehow just fall over dead. That, he, that you would not die of thirst. That somehow your hiding place, you know, you're hiding out there in the desert and, and you'd be able to stay hidden. That King Saul could be searching everywhere and he's never going to find you. Now, to be honest, I think that's some of the stuff that I would be wanting from God. Protect me from all of this, please. But listen to this. Back at the beginning of verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And you know, if, if David, 
in the roughest, most difficult patch of his life, if he can say something like that, that his greatest desire was to be in the presence of the Lord, then doesn't it stand to reason, at least a little bit, that no matter what situation he was in his life, that was his desire. His greatest desire was simply to be in the presence of the Lord. What is your one desire? At this moment in your life, what is the one thing that you would ask of the Lord? If the answer to that question changes according to your circumstances and what you're going through, then maybe there's a chance that you need to shift your priorities a little bit. Now, it's not that those other things aren't important because they are important. It's just that they aren't the ultimate. They aren't the the number one thing. Now, God, he encourages his children, he encourages us to cast our cares upon him. We're supposed to make our requests known to him. But our ultimate desire, it has to be God's presence. And can you say this morning that you would have the same prayer as King David, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And so our identity, it is in Christ, and our one desire is to be with Christ. But let's look at our third one thing. It's found in Philippians chapter 3. And now we probably know more about the Apostle Paul than any other character in the New Testament, except for Jesus, of course. We know that he started out as a Pharisee, a Pharisee who was violently persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. He was out to get to church. We know that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was blinded by this great light and that he went from trying to stop the gospel to trying to spread the gospel. And so if someone were to ask you, what was Paul's ultimate purpose in life? then you would probably want to say to share the gospel or to tell people about Jesus. But if we look closely at how Paul himself actually answers this question, it's in Philippians chapter 3. Paul, he's going through and he's, he's outlining his credentials the, as, as, a, as a Jew, his history as, as a Jew and as a Pharisee, as a zealous persecutor of the church. And Paul says, none of that even matters. It's all rubbish. At verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, here's what he says, his ultimate statement. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And now here, here is Paul's one thing statement. Not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is your purpose? What is your calling? It's simple. To be like Jesus in every way, to follow so close to Jesus, to be as much like Jesus as we possibly can. 
a little bit about the difference between calling and assignment. A calling is, is what you can do that nobody else can do in your place. It's really what you can do. God has called you to do that. What you will ultimately be for all of eternity. Assignment is some of the other things that, that you get to do along the way as you're filling that in. Let's look at one final one thing statement. This one is found in Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, the man became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, is Jesus telling you that you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Well, I can't really tell you that. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. The point here is that Jesus, he was immediately able to identify the one thing that was distracting this rich young ruler. The one thing that was keeping him from being all in with Jesus. And so for you, it might be that same thing, and for you, it might not. It could be something totally different. I want to leave you with two questions. What is it that is distracting you? What is it that is keeping you from being all in with Jesus? Jesus.